Good evening, America. Last week, I was off to a family wedding in the mountains, and so it's good to be back in the saddle. But when I got back, my last show titled A Case for DeSantis was actually deleted by the YouTube snowflakes due to ambiguous claims of misinformation. And then my my appeal was denied, obviously. Um, So when you join our club, you are helping us get around the snowflake feelings of big tech. Uh, We've been working hard to upgrade our club member experience. And the most recent upgrade, which is I'm pretty excited about, uh, is a social media experience. All our club members can now log in to fightlifefeast.com and enjoy getting to know one another, network with each other, and have the luxury of doing this without the trash on the Twitter sphere or Facebook. So log in, kick the tires around, post some family pictures, and let's build a community of those who like to fight, laugh, and feast. It's pretty, pretty exciting, pretty fantastic the little the social media experience uh, that we've built there for club members only. Club members only get access, so so join the club. Uh, the Water Break team is back to talk about the feminization of America and to bring you an amnesty COVID deal. Um, do we do we have a deal or or maybe not? I don't know. So so grab your best scotch or Dr Pepper and enjoy the show. All right, cannonball or belly flop? It's no question that America is highly feminized. And by the, what I mean by that is we have rejected God's word on the roles of men and women in society, in the church, and most importantly, in the family. Over a century of feminization in our country, uh, and women can now become men, that was, that's what feminiz- feminization got us? That's what you know, this movement got us? They've reached their ultimate goal? But you know, this also means men can be women. So not only, you know, women want to be men, but now men can be women. And that just kind of perpetuates the cycle that women, if you choose the path of feminism, will always have to fight men to be the best at women's basketball, the best at, you know, women's UFC, God forbid, and, and competing to be on the front cover of Vogue. Mm, Bruce Jenner, which reminds me of the joke. How many feminists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, the fact that you think that it's not society, but the light bulb that should change is your problem. That, yep, there you go. Or, or how about this joke? How do you confuse a feminist? You tell, you tell her you refuse to allow her to make a sandwich. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, she doesn't want to make a sandwich, but then you tell her not to make a sandwich. All right, never mind. It's bad when I got to explain my joke. Joking aside, feminism is an ideological movement that is cancer to its own existence feminism has obliterated any distinction of what it means to be a woman and this insanity has culminated in gender bender ideology where everyone is being forced to complement the emperor's clothes and and if you say what clothes i mean you are a bigot but this cascade of insanity starts somewhere you know the ideology of, of feminism it starts somewhere it has an origination point and if you have followed cross politic and water break long enough, you know that our MO is to trace our societal failures back to the church. So my big, my big idea here is that feminism went unaddressed in the church starting in the 19th century. And over a century later, Bruce Jenner received the ESPY awards as a woman. You know, so goes the church, you know, so goes the culture. Now, It is obvious to point out that the church has largely rejected gender roles in the church and in the family. And we can point to Bible verses that reveal our rejection of God's creational order. That's pretty easy uh, for, you know, a standard Protestant to 
to find and point to and identify. Um, that's not hard. But I think the rejection is even more fundament, fundamental than just rejecting God's creational order and calling for men and women. We started to reject God. We started to redefine God. That's where feminism started. Now, Ann Douglas, who is a self-described feminist, and she actually converted to Judaism, I think, when she was 85, wrote a book called The Feminization of American Culture. Okay, I think she wrote this in the 1940s. In her book, Ann points out that feminism, the feminization of America started about 1820. And she pegged its origins as uh, to, to the rejection of Calvinism. It's shocking for and she's a self-described feminist. The first great awakening began in the, 19, in the 1730s, and it was characterized by what Anne called an Edwardsian school of preachers and theology, you know, John, Jonathan Edwards. So between, 19, you know, between 1730s and 1820, America's leading theology was Calvinistic, which was characterized by a high view of the, you know, the sovereignty of God and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, Anne analyzes this Ed- Edwardsian school this way. She says that this Calvinism had an intellectual rigor, an imaginative, imaginative uh, precision, and had a rather complicated and rigid uh, defined um, body of dogma, uh, attendance at a certain church that had a markedly theological function. So I'm, I'm using her descriptions there. And and Anne also said that this Calvinism had a so-called toughness that was necessary, quote, necessary for preserving for all virtues, the preservative of, of for all virtues, even those, even the virtues of gentleness and generosity. And, and she was actually, she doesn't praise Calvinism all the way. There's, there, she has some major criticisms of it, but that was a, one area, uh, the toughness area that she actually praised Calvinism for. Now, the Second Great Awakening started about 1970 and went through about 1840. That awakening was marked by sentimentalism and emotionalism and not by theological rigor and concern for all of Scripture, you know, inerrancy. This gave way to all sorts of religiosity, which Anne would distinguish from Calvinism, and particularly women and liberal ministers were drawn to this new American religion. And by 1875... American Protestants, and, and this is her quoting, quoting Anne, American Protestants were much more likely to define their faith in terms of family morals, civic responsibility, and above all, in terms of the social function of church going. The numbers followed the numbers. Numbers became more important in the church. She points this out. Numbers became more important in the church and the pews than doctrinal beliefs. And this theological and missional shift, Anne points out, is what gave us feminism. And so between, you know, the Great Awakening, 1730s to, you know, about 1820, uh, you have this strong Calvinism in our theology. And then from about 1820, of course, there's some fudge years because the Second Great Awakening started in about 1790, 95. Um, But from about 1820 to 1875, there's this remarkably shift uh, to sentimentalism, emotionalism, and which gave birth to feminism. So America rejected a biblical view of the sovereignty of God and inerrancy of Scripture and exchanged it for emotionalism and sentimentalism. And when you give that over a century to marinate in our culture, right? It's been over way over a century. It's no wonder our feelings are supreme. 
And this is the idol of sentimentalism and emotionalism. And it's now killing America as we know it. We don't even know what a a man is anymore. We don't even know what a, a woman is anymore. When we play with the definition of who God is, when we toy with, you know, is God sovereign or not? Our scriptures and errant or not. When we start toying with who God is and how he's revealed himself to us, uh, it's no wonder that we're going to start toying with and redefining, you know, what a man is, what a woman is, or what our roles are, what our creational roles are that God has given us in society. Well, I'm glad to have back my water break team. Uh, uh, Jacob Daniels is back in the house. And, and you see this madness with uh, recently on The View. Um, uh, they were talking about abortion. And, you know, the, the View is not known for its logic or its rational thinking or maybe even its intelligence. Uh, but this really struck me. Uh, one of the... Uh, um, uh, ladies on the view uh, basically him, well here roll, roll the clip what's also surprising to me is the abortion issue um, I read a, a poll just yesterday that white Republican suburban women are now going to vote Republican why it's almost like roaches voting for raid right it's do we love tail? democracy or not? Because just saying that it's, it's insulting to the voter. People make up decisions on what's right for their family. And the idea that well, the you should have a say. Jacob, thanks for coming back. Roaches voting for raid. What is going on there? Well, Gabe, uh, I never thought I would be com- commenting on the view again, but here we are. <laughs> You're on water break, uh, man. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, you know, we, we heard similar kind of sentiments uh, in Europe not long ago. You know, just basically what we are seeing is a frustration uh, which is brewing as a result of major political transition that we are about to witness. Um, this particular poll done by Wall Street Journal suggested that White suburban women are favoring Republican uh, Republicans in Congress by 15 points, while the Democrat support with the same group has dropped to 27 points since August. This Ooh. is a huge drop, uh-huh. right? And according to the poll, this is because of the economic state of the country and because abortion is becoming a non-issue. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, however, I, I would also add that the suburban parents, who also include black women, whom the view completely ignores, you know, uh, they are not their category to mm-hmm. talk about, mm-hmm. uh, have woken up to the reality and are finding out how their children have been indoctrinated in schools and why crime is getting normalized. They're mm-hmm. also getting aware of what they have lost uh, as a result of giving into gender and race hustling, uh, similar to this one that we actually heard just now. Yeah. Uh, now, this is a kind of a comment someone would make when they live in a high castle. You know, uh, these people mm-hmm. who are... Commenting on these issues are completely out of touch of the real world. Uh, They have no clue in terms of issues that are real to people, average people. Right. Uh, But I I was surprised that uh, Sonny Hostin, the host who actually mentioned this, knew who a woman is. You know, (laughs) surprisingly, we get back to that. That's right. Dictionaries when it comes to definitions on these issues during election time. I don't know how does that happen. It happens very well. Uh, apparently, the, their color only matters if they vote Republican, right. uh, and that's a big issue for them. So, another you don't, question: 
Yeah. So you don't think the abortion issue is going to affect November elections anymore? I'm not saying that it wouldn't, but it's not the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people, especially, I would say that uh, women in this case are uh, waking up to their inherent role. That is, you know, the nature that they have in terms of uh, and the society, how it's been going against their nature and how it should work out in society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's impacting. They, they are right there being impacted by some of the policies in terms of economics and in terms of uh, educational policies and things like that. So they are reacting more. That's primary for them. That's real mm-hmm. for them. That's mm-hmm. about their children. And I think uh, uh, in this matter, what we should be asking is that where is the outrage? Uh, mm-hmm. Will Sunny hosting be canceled like Ro- Roseanne Barr, who had uh, alleged uh, uh, compared former um, Obama advisor Valerie Jarrett to an ape? Mm-hmm. And she was canceled. But mm-hmm. I don't think so. It's going to happen in this case. As usual, there might possibly be some apology without calling out the sin. Yeah, it, seem, we'll it seems to that. me that using the terminology calling, you know, she's referring to white suburban women as roaches voting yeah. for raid. Um, uh, I mean, that, that doesn't like harken back to any imagery of what we've called other races in the past and and how we've you know wanted to uh, exterminate other races and and her coming apparently she's probably voting for the democratic party and and of course the democratic party was the the party of the kkk and uh the the modern party of planned parenthood who's mm-hmm. killed you know more black babies which she's she's a black woman more black babies and and you know i mean it seems like the roaches are in a different place you know it's it's a common tendency among people that we project our sin onto others Ooh. And this is not something different, uh, you know. And at the end, the, the issue with this particular view is that they expect that conservatives will forgive and forget. Mm-hmm. So this can be repeated again. Yeah. And this is where we go wrong. I think we should be very careful to call out the sin. And what are the sins that we need to call out? Uh, here in this case, uh, sin of double standard. Mm-hmm. Imagine this. If this was, I would say this is an open season on whites. Uh, imagine yeah. You know, this was done and said about blacks or brown women. Yeah, call them roaches. Yeah, exactly. How would this turn out? Yeah. Um, And the other sin is the sin of falsifying preferences, a sin of removing God out of the public square and relegating politics to Satan. Mm -hmm. And we do this time and again. Now, remember, in this case, it's an issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the hypocrisy of the whole thing is that Sonny Hostin claims that she's a devout Catholic and she's against mm-hmm. abortion. However, she thinks that it should be legal. This is the kind of schizophrenic existence in which a lot of Christians are also dwelling these days, where separation of church and state is assumed to be a separation between God and state. Mm -hmm. So we have to somehow come out of this idea of privatized religion, where we focus and get insulated within the four walls of the church. Mm. One of the examples I always give is that, you know, as Christians, we should be careful. Uh, Many times we behave like this. Imagine a baseball game, right? Uh, many are comfortable to believe that God is interested in the players. He has a great plan for them. He wants to redeem them, right? Mm-hmm. But it is the devil who owns the referee, and he is the one who makes the rule. Yeah, That's how we behave in public sphere. And I think that has to change. Perhaps what these ladies need, and a lot of people need, is a robust teaching on what governance is. Yeah. According to our faith. Uh, Jacob, stay with us. Joseph, I want to bring you in. Um you know, we, we're we're counting down to the election days before the election here. Uh, um, well, actually, when this show airs on Sunday night, uh, we'll, um, the election will be two days away from us. Um, 
how are you seeing are are you seeing the role of abortion not being as uh, uh, the argument the Roe v. Wade everything that happened this summer? Yeah. It, is it is it not impacting you think the the polls and the way people are going to vote in uh, in two days? Well, uh, I think it, there is going to be an impact. I think for Democrats who've really tried to make this the issue that they want to run on, I think it probably came the the. Dobbs decision probably came two months too early. I think if the mm. election had been held in August, it would have made a much bigger difference than it ultimately will. Because yeah. again, the the attention span of the public is is quite short. So there went through this. There were some who were outraged, of course, by Dobbs, and and they were riding that high. But since then, I think you've seen um, uh, inflation and gas prices and the border. Depending, especially in some of the border states, you go to Arizona, where you have a key governor's race and a key Senate race, the border is going to be a big issue there, much more so than abortion. And so I think the, um, the emotion around the Dobbs decision has just faded because they all do. And there are other issues that are just more top of mind Mm -hmm. as uh, Korean Jean-Pierre would say about some things. Um, KJP. Yes. um, More important to the voters as they vote. So it's, it's going to be, it's certainly relevant for some voters, um, but I think other issues are, are, um, more pressing. Would, would you say uh, what if you were to call the election today in Pennsylvania between Oz and Fetterman? Uh, uh, what what do you think? What, what what's your best bet? Oh, um, the last numbers I have seen indicate that Fetterman could actually pull this out. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it, Pennsylvania has um, been difficult for for Republicans lately. Uh, Oprah just came yeah. in late in the game uh, for Fetterman. Uh, will she be able to tip the scale there? Uh, who knows? And again, Oz is not somebody who excites conservatives. And no. he's kind of that, that typical um, middle of the road, try, claiming to be a moderate Republican who in the Senate might vote for the right leader uh, from a conservative perspective. Right. But, um, we, you know, is probably much more of a Lisa Murkowski yep. or Susan Collins mm-hmm. than a, uh, you know, Mike Lee or do you think, Ted Cruz. Yeah. Do you think the only reason why he got there was because Trump actually Trump endorsed him? Yeah, for sure. Why yeah. do you think Trump endorsed him? There's some other people that even align more <laughs> with Trump than Oz. You know, getting inside the mind of Donald Trump and understanding him, <laughs> it, I, I, I do not get paid enough for that. Um, who knows? I mean, generally, I think Donald Trump does what is good for Donald Trump. And, and sometimes that ends up being good for other people. But I don't yeah. think Donald Trump has a well-formed worldview. Yeah. I think it's much more how does this benefit me? Um, that's kind of his base analysis. Mm-hmm. And I think his instincts are right in some things. But uh, why does he do what he do does? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> you can't you can't say so. What do you think the impact the last two years of covid policies are going to have on the election? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we might have talked about this previously on the show, but in the last week or so, I've seen that uh polling that suggests parents prefer Republicans to Democrats by 35 points, 35 points. And now I think there's a range of issues some of that is probably crime, depending on where you live. Yeah. But I think a lot of that is res- residual from COVID. And not just like, did you close down my kid's school? Did you require them to wear masks? Mm-hmm. But the unmasking, pun intended, mm-hmm. of public education mm-hmm. that revealed what was going on in the curriculum during that time. Yeah. And so parents, uh, COVID had a huge impact on the way 
uh, parents view the education system mm-hmm. and what their government is doing and whose side their government is on. Mm-hmm. So I think um, it may not just be COVID policy, mask policy, but I think ultimately COVID is going to have, in, in the fallout of COVID, is going to have a huge impact on specifically how parents vote. And I think that white suburban woman demographic that you were just talking about how how angry the the view is mm. about that yeah. i think covid really changed how that demographic is going to vote jacob you're in california um are you seeing uh kind of the impact of of covid policies affecting your elections there I definitely I'm seeing a, a turnaround in terms of people's perspective and especially, the, for example, the Atlantic uh, piece that came out recently asking for, you know, forgiveness and also that's the kind of attitude I'm seeing among a lot of people, but they're not calling out the sin. And that's where the issue is. And one of the things that I'm seeing and I'm very optimistic about this is that um, earlier people have been looking everything through the lens of just one thing. Mm-hmm. And if, if we are not looking at through the lens of the gospel, everything, then it turns out to be sin, whatever we are looking at through, uh, be it COVID, be it abortion or whatever it may be. That's so right. the good thing is that people are looking at multi-factor issues and it's hitting their pockets. I and mean, that's the major issue right now for people here, mm-hmm. much more than abortion or anything, because uh, mm-hmm. it's come down to their own household. Yeah. J- uh, Joseph, Jacob brought up the Atlantic article, um, uh, basically uh, Professor... Um, uh, man, it was Emily. Uh, what, where was she from? Was she from Harvard or Princeton? Um, I can't remember. Anyway, she wrote this article uh, in the Atlantic, um, basically arguing for a pandemic amnesty. Um, I thought that I thought the term amnesty was rather aw- odd. Basically, you know, she's arguing for you know, hey, we need grace. It, it was complicated. It was challenging. America never really faced this level, you know, of threat before. Uh, you know, but but amnesty was such an odd term for me to see in that article. What are your thoughts on that? Well, to your point, amnesty is typically it, it follows an admission of guilt. Right. And so that's when amnesty is necessary, because there's this acknowledgement that, uh, you know, we we have previously heard that in the immigration context, people who entered the country illegally. There's no there's an acknowledgement that they came here illegally, but we're going to grant them amnesty and allow them to stay because we just decided that's the best situation. But there's an acknowledgement that they did something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this an acknowledgement that they did something wrong? And, And those asking for mercy are typically the ones who feel like they have done something wrong. Uh-huh. And yeah, so it's it's an interesting term. And maybe it is kind of quietly in their own way, this recognition that, boy, did we handle this entire episode in a way uh, that was dangerous. And, and specifically uh, because of the educational impact we've seen, the educational impact, the psychological impact mm-hmm. that this has had on young people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that nobody warned them, of course, right? It's not that there was nobody who said, hey, this could be problematic. Right. And that's that's the challenge is that they're discovering that everything, the critics of their school closure policies, kind of the really the draconian measures that were t- taken, mm-hmm. all of those critics, it looks like we're right about almost everything. And now they're saying, hey, can't we just be nice? Uh, we really just ruined the lives of millions of kids in significant ways that are not recoverable. But uh, hey, we did the best that we could. Wow. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, the, the, I remember uh, seeing David French retweet the article basically saying we just all need to show each other grace we need more grace 
and but guys like David yeah. French, guys like uh, a number of notable uh, uh, figures, Christian figures too, they weren't showing really any grace to those who were kind of refusing the COVID narrative. I mean, I mean David French even had tweeted out that Christians are responsible if they weren't masking up and getting the jab, they're responsible for deaths. Yeah, um, that's well, that's not grace. Yeah, well, well, that's fair. But of course, the gospel does not call us to extend grace only to those who extended us grace initially, right? Yeah, 100%. So, grace is appropriate. What I'm concerned about is that this call for amnesty is going to be an objection to an evaluation of what actually happened. That's I think good. the difference between right. revenge and justice is, are we doing it out of concern for others? So we make sure we don't repeat these mistakes. Or are we just trying to extract a pound of flesh? And we have to examine our own hearts and make sure that we're not trying to extract a pound of flesh because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, right? Yep. So the motives do matter, yep. but I am disinclined to just say, Hey, let's just all move on and pretend it didn't happen mm. uh, because there's a lot to learn from this. Because yeah. there were a lot of people who did warn of exactly what has happened, specifically in the education context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I'm going to read part of this article that I, fi- I find really Please. interesting. Because she says here, in the face of so much uncertainty, getting something right had a hefty amount of luck. So she's saying those who were right were just lucky about it. And similarly, getting something wrong wasn't a morally f- moral failing. And, and in many cases, that's true. Treating pandemic choices as a scorecard on which some people racked up more points than others is preventing us from moving forward. Well, there's a there's a point at which I agree with that. It's, this is not just about proving that I'm right and you're wrong or you were wrong and or you were right and I'm wrong. Right. It can't just be personal. But I I take very strong issue with the fact that this is a high amount of luck. Right. Because I yeah. remember about four weeks into this and no, there was a lot we didn't know. And that's what the that's part of what the author here gets correct. There was a lot we didn't know. And I was one of those. We were hosting meeting small groups at our church and we're like, hey, we're not going to have people over here. And for like three, four weeks, we honored this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And and then I started, I was just asking my friends who worked in the hospital and they're basically like, yeah, some people are sick, but here's who's getting sick. It's really obese people and it's really old people. Mm-hmm. That's who's getting sick. Mm-hmm. And those are who getting seriously sick. And that was of course anecdotal, but I heard that consistently. Yeah. And I, you know, five, six weeks into this thing, I felt like I wasn't trying to kill anybody. I didn't want my family to die either. Mm-hmm. So I was happy to uh, take the take a cautious approach while we really didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. But they're pretending that it took us two years to know these things. Right. And it didn't take us two years to know these things. We understood within weeks, months at most, who the vulnerable population That's was, right. who we should be protecting. And there were millions of us saying, let's protect the vulnerable. Let's not ruin the lives of those who are not vulnerable. That's let's right. let people make choices about the risk we basically know the risks and that was just that was a couple months into this thing and then they drug this out for years so to say that was luck that was not luck Mm -hmm. and and that really minimizes what happened so i i do think it's appropriate to be able to look back and say who were the health experts that were just flat out lying to Mm -hmm. us so the next time something like this happens um we make better decisions because this was handled in a not just a bad way but in a bad in a way that really did harm people's lives and you can't just say hey there shouldn't be accountability because uh, i did my best yeah, and it seems to me, I, I, I agree with you on, on your assessment there, but it also seems to me like a lot of these leaders who got it wrong because of the egregious nature of of the uh, you know lack of wisdom or or bad decision making process or even lying. Um, I mean, to to admit you know to ask for amnesty means that you should you know also step down. 
um, you know, because because leadership involves trust. And when you break the trust of the public in a very significant major way. And in addition to that, you know, people got arrested during this. People lost their their livelihoods, their income, their businesses. You know, in our county, in the first two months, uh, about 3000 jobs were lost in our county due to our governor's shutdown. And like the first two months, those are real jobs. And so. I think a, a lot of, uh, you know, we should be calling, I think, for leadership to own up and step down, too, as part of this, you think? Well, certainly. I mean, I think that's a very reasonable um, approach is to have accountability. And that's really what a lot of people are trying to avoid. I'm not I don't know if I want to go you know, if you have to clean house everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it has to be on the table. You have to you have to have when it's something this catastrophically wrong was was done mm-hmm. right when you missed it in such big ways and those of you know, it was always follows the experts the experts were right about almost nothing in this in this entire thing and that's what's ironic about it is those of us who are complete amateurs and we're just kind of using instincts and common sense and kind of observing the world mm-hmm. why were those folks so much more right than the people who are the so-called experts and i think what most of us understand is so much of this assessment got politicized very early on. It mm-hmm. became the conservatives and liberals yep. on masks, mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. Democrats and Republicans. It became tribal within weeks. Yep. And so we just agree. We disagree with whatever you say and you disagree with whatever I say. Yep. And that's just a stupid way of trying to uh, evaluate things, but yep. it got there pretty quickly. Uh, uh, Jacob, I want to own in here. Um, you know, my, my monologue was about the feminization of America and um, it was interesting kind of, I'm reading through this book by Ann Douglas on the feminization of America. And, you know, she's doesn't seem to be a Christian. She became a Jew later in life. Uh, like I mentioned, um, uh, uh, at age about 80, 85, she con- converted to the Jewish religion. Um, but it, it, you know, I was reading it and thinking, you know, she's, she's kind of pegging it to Calvinism, but I don't even think she really knows what Calvinism really is. Um, but it, it really struck me that, you know, when you start toying with the sovereignty of God, which is who God is, right? This is an attribute of God. This is um, who God is. It, it's no wonder we adjust and tinker with who who God is of the of the whole earth, and then we start adjusting and tinkering with man and woman. And so, if we've been baking and marinating in this, you know, culture of adjusting God, and then then we adjust who man is, and we adjust who woman is, and so forth. Uh, we get this crazy, um, uh, I mean, the slippery slope is real, you know? Yeah. I think uh, what's happening here is that we are getting into that old temptation to basically grab sovereignty. That's what we want. We mm-hmm. want control. We want to, yeah. um, uh, you know, we perceive disorder in God's standard is our order in, in that regard. So what we are doing is basically attacking the very human nature as God has created us to be. And uh, allowing for that uh, kind of like topples somehow in their perspective, God's throne. Mm. And I think that's exactly where we need to be careful. And uh, we need to be uh, available in terms of speaking truth into these issues from a biblical perspective and to understand how God sees us, Mm -hmm. how God understands us. So we have to be careful about any kind of attack on God's anthropology. Mm -hmm. And that's what I believe we have to really reinforce in terms of our teaching within the church and also outside the church. and But it has to be translated. So uh, we so many a times what happens is that we are good at analyzing and good in advocating, but we don't actualize what mm-hmm. we are advocating mm-hmm. in cultural products. Uh, it, it doesn't translate into our curriculum. It doesn't translate into how we vote. 
it doesn't translate into uh, our learning and teaching and various ways of being in culture. And that has to happen. And when that happens, we also need to amplify it. Mm-hmm. And especially in our culture, that is so much necessary, especially young people who have bought into this idea of ultimate reality being one and they have God's essence in them. So if uh, if they have the essence of the creator Sorry. in them and there is no distinction in God and creation, mm-hmm. then how could there be a distinction in gender? How could there be a distinction in yeah. uh, physical right. attributes? How could there be a distinction between false and uh, mm-hmm. falsehood and good and right? And, you know, so, so, so there is a lot of confusion all because of that. So we have to redeem and regain God's anthropology back into our culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really good. Uh, Jacob, Joseph, you know, how do you, uh, kind of analyze the effect that feminization, um, the feminist movement has had kind of on on our political um, uh, dealings over the last probably, let's say, decade or two decades. Oh, that's, you know, I, I'm no expert on like yeah. the, the feminist movement, I would say. Uh, I, I don't I don't know what I attribute kind of the, the core issue to. I do think, of course, there is this broader war and we see it on in the sexual revolution. We see it in in, in, in the, the war on male and f- masculinity and femininity as, as kind of illustrated in the, tr- in the entire transgender movement. I mm-hmm. think, old, I think the, the war on identity and God, the way God made us right. And yeah. it's male and female in Genesis chapter one, he put us together in a marriage. He said, go be fruitful and multiply. And then he said, rule and subdue, right? Every single one of those things. And Genesis one and two is the only place where we have a perfect world that God shows us a sinless, perfect world. And, and key to that is male and female. He created us. And those are distinct, equal, distinct, and different. And, and Satan is of course at war at the molecular level with everything that God (laughs) declared good in Genesis one and two. And we see it as political, but Mm -hmm. when you go back to Genesis one and two, you realize what it really is. It's It's not inherently political. Uh So it's this identity. Who did God make us to be? Mm -hmm. And we, we, we can count on, it's like the sun will rise in the morning is that what God told you you should be, Satan will say, no, that's not what you should be about everything that God, and that's, you know, how we ought to behave, the source of truth. Do our feelings got us to truth? Do our feelings got us to hell? Are we male? Are we female? Do we control our own destiny? Do we control truth? Everything that God answered that question, Mm -hmm. Satan's going to be making the counter argument saying, no, that's Mm -hmm. not true, right? Mm -hmm. So feminization of, in, in the feminist movement, is just one of many distortions of good things that God gave us that mm-hmm. he's that he's trying to disrupt the foundation of our identity and saying, I know what God said about you, but mm-hmm. I have something, you know, as he convinced Eve in Genesis chapter three, mm-hmm. it's desirable to make one wise, right? I'm going to convince mm-hmm. you that your rebellion is actually good for you, which is why we're also, you know, self-assured and self-righteous in our that's, rebellion. That's right. Now, um, I guess this is kind of more, more to both of you guys, uh, it, you know, it, I mean, every decade, I feel like, man, this has got to be rock bottom for America <laughs> or this has got to be rock bottom for feminism or or, you know, um, and, and or the, or transgenderism has to be rock bottom. <laughs> you know, it's like you you have Bruce Jenner. Um, it's like, is this rock bottom us thinking that men can be women or I mean, what you know, what do you think is kind of next in this ideological slippery slope that we're on? I think that um, the attempt is not just to, um, you know, make it vague in terms of who a man is and who a woman is. The idea is basically to uh, become divine, ultimately. Mm -hmm. That's the goal, Mm -hmm. right? 
somehow we uh, latch onto this idea of that we have a divine nature. And even technologically, if we see, we, have, we are finding an ally in that regard, that how we are heading towards the whole idea of singularity, making everything, you know, conceiving all things together and that we can actually define our own destiny. Mm-hmm. So in so doing, what's happening, what we are seeing is that um, within the academic world, I think the, the whole evolutionary framework is getting a pushback. There are good arguments coming against it. So what we are attempting to do now is arguing more in terms of moral evolution. And this is in that process. So what I'm saying is that there there will be a push to actually disregard any kind of distinction, any kind of binary, right, physical or non-physical. And it might manifest into something new in future. I think I'm seeing more in terms of like being more plastic, uh, um, uh, latching onto something more synthetic mm-hmm. and redefining ourselves. Uh, if you look back, you know, if you if you have an issue, you go to a doctor. He would, if you have an issue in one of your legs, he's not going to attach one more leg. That will be the more unnatural thing to do, <laughs> right? A doctor would know what's the right physicality is in terms of working with you to improve you. Whereas what we are doing now is that in the, in the name of augmentation, we are turning that which is natural, that we are natural, turning us attaching us to something that which is unnatural, yeah, right? right? And the basic premise behind all that is that there is this idea of everything having the essence of divine in it, and somehow we have to connect everything together. And in so doing, I think the danger uh, ahead of us is in this, that if Christians wouldn't involve um, uh, and bring their prophetic voice in places like uh, innovations that's happening in technological innovations and uh, other advancements like AI and everything that's happening right now, uh, we might see some, uh, some, we might be treading into some dangerous zones. Mm -hmm. At the same time, having said this, uh, though we are seeing this going downhill moment in culture, I'm seeing some really positive response also in terms of how people are waking up and understanding and recognizing the importance of giving um, God, the primacy with regards to who they are and who they ought to be. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in that regard. Yeah. Joseph, what's your take on rock bottom? Well, you know, the, the fact that we think this is rock bottom is a form of privilege because we have been in this place where things have been so much better because the world really was Christianized. Let's, you know, yeah. go back to the world that Christianity was introduced into where any, if you were in the upper caste, you could have sex with anybody in the lower caste, regardless of age, anytime you wanted to, right? You could purchase people at will because there was no sense that people had innate value. And and it's ironic that we're talking about feminism, right? Because Christianity Mm. is the thing that introduced the idea that women had any value in the first place. The Roman culture didn't understand that at all. If you didn't want your daughter, you set it out and you expose her. You could purchase women for all sorts of purposes if you wanted to, right? There was no inherent value in women. It was the gospel that said women are inherently valued, different, but inherently valuable, right? So we built civilizations on all of these Christian ideas. And so there's still this residue. And, you know, the secular world is still borrowing all of this material from Christianity even to argue uh, uh, for equality. And it's ironic because as they try to secularize things, they are eroding the foundation of the equality that they claim to seek. Mm. And I think they do so with, with, uh, you know, with good intentions. But um, you can't be a secularist and, 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 and for equality for very long because the only basis <laughs> of equality that exists is the fact that we're created equal, right? So there's... There's a long way down that you can go. Hopefully, we're not going to go there. But history has shown this is not the darkest time in human history. It's bad for us. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
it can get worse, which is why we have to engage and make sure it doesn't. That is that is so good. Jacob and Joseph, thank you for being on Team Water Break. Hope to see you guys next week. Good to see you, Gabe. Good to see you. Well, you, you can't be a secularist and have any notion of what equality is. I like that. I like that. All right, folks, thank you for tuning in to Water Break. Uh, you know, kind of talking with Jacob and Joseph, it, it is so good that Jesus is our king. And is, as we go out in our families and in our workplace and out into this world, you know, collisions are going to happen. And, and But we have King Jesus behind us. We have his sovereign plans reigning over, over us. So build on what God has in front of you. And until next week, go fight, laugh, and feast. This is the Water Boy with Water Break. Mom always told me to be a good boy, but the world said I could be anything I wanted to be, which is great, because I want to be a problem. No, I won't dive into sex, drugs, or gender confusion. To the world, that would make me a good little boy. I will learn formal logic and adhere firmly to the concept of objective truth. I will commit myself absolutely to the authority of the Word of God and make friends with Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Chesterton, Lewis, and the U.S. Constitution. I hope to grow up and love only one woman, a woman at least as clear-thinking and rebellious in this world as I will be, who knows where true beauty lies and who will never let me stop striving to be the biggest problem I can be. I will give my life for hers and aim to have a family large enough to require specialty automobiles. We will worship in a church unashamed of the gospel and live in a community of families doing the same. I will work myself to the bone providing for my family, and I will make sure my kids all fall in love with Narnia and Middle Earth, that they will all know how to think, that evolution will make them giggle, and rainbows will make them think of Noah and his archiarchy. Like I said, I will be a problem, immune to all that is hip and trendy and now. Singing songs are centuries old, savoring good wine and great whiskey, dancing and laughing and feasting while the enemies of God scowl and glower in shelter in place. Hello, boy, the world says. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a metastasizing cancer of conservative Christian culture, devouring Marx's impotent progressive dream and building a resurrected Western world. I want to be a stomper of stupid sandcastles, an exposer of poisonous lies, I want my life to be a monument to the triune creator God who made us all. The kind of monument you and yours will never be able to tear down. Oh, and farming. Thanks for asking. New St. Andrews College. Liberal Arts for Outlaws.